benedictions found in the Bible. And so, gentlemen, what would you give the world since you have accomplished a great deal in, in a short period of time? Well, I want you to focus this morning on sharing God's greatest gift, himself. Let's read verses 11 through 14. I'm going to focus on verse 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The greatest gift that any of us can give to the world is the Trinity. Our congratulations to each of you and our prayers for your continued spiritual growth and development in our Lord Jesus Christ go out to you. Now just because we're focused on the graduates doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to each one of us. It does. Our time today is marked with a distinct focus on an obsessive, overt exposure to expressive individualism. I've not seen the movie Frozen, but for a number of years it was one of the top animated films, and apparently there's a young lady in there, the lead in that film, whose name is Elsa. And she sings a song in that movie entitled Let It Go. And one of the verses reads this way. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Tim Keller helps to define expressive individualism by pointing to these lyrics as a, a good example of overt individualism. Identity today is not realized, he goes on to write, as in traditional societies by sublimiting ourselves, our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, today we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anyone else says. This is taken from his, his marvelous book, by the way, on preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism. Well, what exactly is expressive individualism? Well, Dr. Brian Rosner, who's the principal of Ridley College in Australia, wrote a book entitled How to Find Yourself While Looking Inward is Not the Answer. And he lists six different tenets. Number one, the best way to find yourself is to look inside yourself. Number two, the highest goal in life is happiness. And next week, we're going to move back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start to look at holiness. So it's not happiness. According to the Bible, it's holiness. Third, all moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Fourth, forms of external authority are to be rejected, all forms. Fifth, the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Sixth, Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. And I'll add one when I was doing this. Certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, their ethnicity, or their sexuality, are of paramount importance. Does that describe our world today? I think it does. 
In fact, Dr. Uh, Rosner wrote a prayer, the prayer of the authentic self. It identifies with our obsession with ourself, and it mimics the Lord's Prayer, and it reads this way. My essence within, help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come, my will be done, from birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies, as I suppress those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all external authorities. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine, now and forever. Amen. Grads, you're not God's gift to the world. He is. believers, our lives should emulate that of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the Trinity. For in the Trinity, God gave himself to the world. Notice verse 14. The first thing, give the world the grace of Jesus Christ. Romans tells us that sin is omnipresent. The sins of commission and omission, they are lost sinners. We're saved sinners, and we can send it any degree imaginable. In fact, the world bears that as a record. Yet, as believers, we are never rejected of God. Why? Because as believers, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We're shown our sins through conviction, and conviction is always from the grace of God. but we are never in Christ Jesus shown the door because of our sins. We're changed by his grace into the, into the likeness of his son so that, we, that, so that he might bless us, so that we might bless others. Dr. M.A. Nance wrote this. He said, in a world that itches to find guilt, we have a God who itches to show grace. Do we itch to forgive others as we've been forgiven? Are we itching to share God's word, the gospel of free grace? Not cheap grace, but it is free. He that bore our sins in his body on the cross and promised, he that comes to me I will never cast out. <clears throat> you men have received grace. Freely dispense grace to others. Our world needs the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also needs, as Paul writes here, the love of God the Father. <clears throat> Bob Dylan wrote a song, wrote many songs as a matter of fact. The title of this song is called Everything is Broken. And he summarized in this song what he thinks of the world. The title illustrates the condition of a fallen world. Have you ever noticed that when you see a good, loving father that's presented in, in TV or on film or <clears throat> the Internet or whatever, that they tend to be ridiculed? Sixty years or so ago, this was not the case, but it is today. In fact, <laughs> there's this, and this isn't a Father's Day message, but we talk now Toxic masculinity. God knows we wouldn't want to have anybody as a man to be a man. Now, there are limits, obviously. And we'll talk more about that next week. Ephesians 5 and first part of chapter 6 on Mother's Day, we preach from Ephesians 5. It describes the ideal family. A loving husband and father submitting to the Lord Jesus, 
loving a loving maternal wife and mother also submitting to the Lord Jesus and children that obey and submit to parents because their parents submit to the Lord Jesus. But the new normal is diametrically and vehemently opposed to this, especially strong fathers. Why is this? Satan cannot destroy the love that exists within the Trinity. He tried and failed. He tried to tempt the God the Son, and he failed. Failing, he tried again at Calvary, and he failed. But he has been somewhat successful in destroying family love, especially that of, of a loving father, because Satan knows that a loving father represents God the Father. In our spiritual stupor, we are allowing him to have spiritual sway over our families. Several years ago in Madrid, Spain, a father and son became estranged. This modern prodigal son left his father, determined never to return. And so his father, lamenting his son's leaving, searched for months to find him without any success. Finally, he took out a, an ad in, the, in a Madrid newspaper, and it read, Dear Juan, all is forgiven. Please meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Saturday. I love you, your father. On Saturday, more than 200 men showed up. yearning to be restored to their father. Everyone yearns for the love of a father, one that reaches out to them and heals and restores them. J.I. Packer's amazing book, Knowing God, he was asked, what is a Christian? And he said, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. We're to share the love of God the Father with the world. We're to share the grace of Jesus Christ. And we're to share the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Excessive individualism means people are isolated now more than ever. You would think it would be other, otherwise, would you not? God made us composite human beings. And we're made in his image. Because of this great truth, we are image bearers, and because we are image bearers, we need fellowship. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit exists because of the love that exists between God the Father and the Son. Complete and eternal fellowship can only be had through the Spirit of God. We may have friends, we have families, we'll have mates, children, but they are no substitute for the satisfaction of the fellowship and the love of God the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ. Believers are empowered to share this love with other sinners, and there are many, many uh, scripture passages to this extent, but for time's sake, I won't read them this morning. So give the gift of depending on the Spirit of God, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit, and the satisfying communion of the Holy Spirit to others. This world is tasked with swift retribution. It is filled with brokenness and isolation. Only the grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we have mercifully received, men and black free, can assuage the hurt of excessive individualism. Give the world.
the trend. Matt and, and Logan, I am on lab two this morning. Awesome. Thank you. Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 24. Starting in verse 24, and um, we're celebrating uh, Graduate Sunday, this service recognizing. Um, you know, those that have completed high school or, or received their bachelor's or master's and, and just a great time to honor and to congratulate them. And when I think about, when I think about graduation, in a lot of ways, I think, I think of change, um, a lot of change going on, new opportunities, uh, you know, excitement of kind of starting another chapter in life, um, might be a change of location. After graduation, going somewhere new, maybe um, to go to another school, perhaps, or uh, start a, another job. There's a change of, might be a change of vocation after graduation, either through a promotion or, or getting a new job altogether. And so things can and many times do change, and they, they shift with accomplishments and, and achievements such as graduation. And, um, with all of the change that happens during this time, it, it's good for graduates and it, it's good for all of us in the congregation to be reminded that the call of God on our lives as disciples of Christ does not change. No matter where we go, no matter who we are around, no matter uh, what we're doing, our calling as disciples of Christ remains the same. And so we see that here in chapter 16. Um, Jesus very plainly, very uh, unreservedly states the calling of a disciple. So please follow with me. Um, I'm going to read starting in verse 24. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so this morning as we consider this text, we're going to see four truths from here this morning. We're going to see the requirements to be a disciple of Jesus, in verse 24. We'll see a type of reversal in the life of a disciple in verse 25. We'll see the reasoning proposed by Jesus for being his disciple in verse 26. And then finally, we'll see the reward for being his disciple in verse 27. So let's look at each of these. First, Jesus tells us in uh, in verse 24 of the requirements of discipleship. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Other ways to say that, it, it would be if anyone wants to come after me. If anyone desires to come after me. If, if anyone desires to be my disciple. Here, this carries with it this idea of a, a conscious desire. A seeking that must take place. We're not going to stumble upon. We're not going to fall into discipleship by accident. It's deliberate action 
on the part of a person. And if this is what we truly long for and truly desire, then there will be certain requirements. There will be certain obligations. There are certain conditions that must be met by the one who wants to follow Jesus. And these requirements that Jesus gives is a person must deny himself. A person must take up their cross. And a disciple must follow Jesus. All three of these verbs that we find in this verse are imperatives. They're commands that must be followed. These are things that they can't be skipped over. They can't be worked around. We can't substitute something in place of these. We must obey and conform to these conditions set forth by Jesus to be his disciple. And also note here that when Jesus talks about coming after him, he's talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer, what it, what it means to be saved. So uh, we can't look at verse 24 here and, and think of it as referring to super disciples or, or, or super Christians somehow. There, there's, there's no such thing as being forgiven of our sins and being saved from hell without being a follower of Jesus. We can't have one without the other. To be saved, to profess belief in Jesus, must lead to a lifetime of following Him. Now, many people try to live as if this weren't true. They try to live if they, as if they could be saved but, but not be a disciple. It's like they, they think they found some kind of loophole in the system or something. Um, but what they're really thinking, what they're really um, saying to themselves deep down is, well, look, I, I don't want hell because who wants hell? But, but I'm not ready to commit my life to, to Jesus here. So I'll be a Christian because, again, I don't want to go to hell. But, but I'm not really willing to go to the extent that Jesus is talking about here in these verses. The problem is that doesn't exist. That's not an option. The Christian life is an all-or-nothing proposition. The, the desire for growth and sanctification in the Christian life is a necessary component of salvation. And we see that described here by Jesus in verse 24. He says that his followers must deny themselves. To deny here means to act in a wholly selfless manner or to disavow, to denounce, to, to disassociate with, to forsake. Man, this is, a, this is so difficult for fallen sinful people every inclination of our flesh is to not to deny ourselves but to indulge ourselves not to deny ourselves but to cater to ourselves to have everything we want when and how we want it and Jesus says here that's that's not the way of his disciples and so we think here what does it mean to deny self to to forsake Ourself. I'll share with you some thoughts from uh, John Gill this morning. He wrote, Let him deny sinful self, ungodliness, and worldly lusts. Let him deny righteous self, and to renounce all of his own prideful and boastful good works of righteousness to save him. Let him deny himself the pleasures and profits of this world when those things are in competition with Christ. Let him drop and banish all his notions and expectations of an earthly kingdom and worldly grandeur. And to think of nothing but reproach, persecution, and death for the sake of his Lord and Master. Charles Simeon wrote that the, the whole of Christianity is an entire system of self-denial. It's what we do we see this in the letters uh, to the New Testament churches when we read in Romans chapter 14 
It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4 says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's to be our pattern of life. It's it's not this one and done kind of thing. It's not something we can can accomplish and check off of a list and and move on to something else. This This is constant. This is day after day after day. That's one of the most difficult things about this. John MacArthur wrote this. It is a constant temptation to want to take back what was given up and reclaim what was forsaken when we battle our flesh in us. That's why we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit that, that abides in us, that lives in us, working inside of us. We have to constantly be in prayer to, to fight against and to deny ourselves and our, and our sinful flesh and, and desires. We need supernatural help to do this. Jesus here in verse 24 also talks about a second requirement. He says that not only must a disciple deny himself, but also a disciple must take up his cross. And I think it's hard for us in many ways to hear this phrase today with our 21st century American ears the way that the 12 would have heard it with their first century ears when Jesus said it. Um, this would have been a very shocking, very offensive, very graphic statement for those to hear. Um, the cross Perhaps the most cruel and most torturous way to execute someone to ever be invented. Um, there was a physical component to, uh, to this of pain. As a matter of fact, the, the word, uh, a word was invented to describe it. Um, the word excruciating means from the cross. Um, there was blood loss, shock. Fatigue, incontinence, inability to control bladder and bowels there on the cross. and All of these things that, that physically happen to the body. But then there was also a psychological component of being a public spectacle where this person was stripped nude and, and others would come by and would, would spit on and would curse at and would throw things at the criminal as they experience those physical effects that we just talked about. That's what it was like to be crucified. One of the most painful and most shameful ways that a person could die. And so what Jesus says here in this phrase, the way that the criminal would get from the jail to the place where they were going to be crucified is by walking through the streets, and carrying the, many times the horizontal part of the cross on their backs. And as they're doing this, the very same spitting, the very same cursing, the same being hit with objects would happen on the walk to the site of the crucifixion as happened at the crucifixion itself. And Jesus tells the twelve that are with him, and, he's, and to us as well, this must be true of you if you are to be my disciple. So this idea of, of having a cross to bear is not some sort of you know, a, a chronic ailment or, or some kind of chronic pain as we hear it um, so often used today. It's, it's, it's not a nagging mother-in-law, right, or, or some kind of familial um, responsibility, or anything like that. We've we've kind of corrupted this language. Bearing a cross is much more serious, and it is much more severe, it is much more shameful than those things. And as Jesus uses it here, there's there's a literal physical component to this, 
that as disciples, we must be willing to face the literal physical pain and death for the sake of Christ. It's not always the reality for, for every believer, but it, it, every believer must be willing and must be ready to face death on account of their faith in Him. But there's also figurative meaning here of bearing one's cross. It, it's a figurative death to self, and it fits really well with, with what we talked about before in, in the requirement to deny oneself. This death to self is a a death to selfishness, a death to sinfulness, a death to control over our lives. It's no longer about what we want, but about what He wants. No longer about our self-centered, self-focused dreams and goals and ambitions. Instead, we pray to our Heavenly Father, not my will, but yours be done, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is good, it's right, it's proper that we take on this mindset and this attitude and live this way because we're no longer our own. We've been bought with price. Paul writes in Romans 14, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So as disciples, we're to deny ourselves. We're to take up our cross. And and thirdly, we are to follow Him. This means to imitate Him, to, to do as He does. As John writes in his first epistle, He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are to look to Scripture to see what he did. We see how he prayed. We see how he fought against temptation. We see how he related to his heavenly father. We see how he related to other people. All of these examples that we see. And we are to go and do likewise. Charles Simeon writes, We are to manifest in all things the same spirit and temper. Like him, we must abhor sin, even in thought. Like him, sit loose to all the things of time and sense. Like him, devote ourselves entirely to God. Nor are we to draw back when Persecution arises, but still to follow our Lord without the camp, bearing his reproach. Last part there is a quote from Hebrews 13. And also, especially in this context of Matthew 16, we are to follow him in denying ourselves and taking up our cross, which is exactly what he did. We see it in Philippians 2, where where Paul writes that, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone desires to be his disciple, they must deny themselves. They must take up their cross, and they must follow Him. And so we've seen here the requirements of discipleship in verse 24. But there's also in verse 25, we see a sort of reversal. It's, it's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. We see that when we, we try to preserve or to save or to keep our lives, we actually lose it. On the other hand, we see that by losing our lives for His sake, we find it. And this, it sounds a little strange at first when we see what Jesus says here, but but it becomes clear once we we see that Jesus is using the word life here in two different, in two distinct ways. Anyone who wants to preserve their physical life 
anybody that wants to be safe and comfortable, displays by their actions their, their love of self. And they, they display by their actions that they're not a true disciple. And therefore, they may keep their temporary physical life, but they lose their eternal life. On the other hand, if someone is willing to forsake safety and comfort in this current temporary physical life for the sake of serving Jesus, that person shows by their actions that they are truly a believer. They're truly a disciple. And in doing so, they find eternal life. Jesus tells his disciples in the the book of John, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And when we go to Scripture and we read and we look, we see some great examples of this in the lives of of people uh, shown to us throughout the Bible. We see in Revelation chapter 12 that there are believers who have It says they've conquered Satan, their accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We see the example of Abraham in Hebrews 11 who obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, not knowing where he was going, as in a foreign land living in tents. We see also the example of Moses who it says refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We have the example of the Apostle Paul, who wrote in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We must lose our lives for the sake of Christ in order to find true, abundant, eternal life, both now and in the age to come. So we've seen the requirements of discipleship. We've seen this reversal of losing our lives to keep them. And thirdly, we see the reasoning of Jesus in verse 26. Look there with me. Jesus says here, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Two very logical, very well-reasoned, rhetorical questions. This first question here is a, it's a hypothetical one. So Jesus is coming and he's saying, in essence, what he's saying is, just imagine, just imagine if somehow, some way you can amass all the wealth in the world. All of it. All the cash, all the stocks, all the minerals, all the land, all the resources, Everything. You owned everything that was possible to own and had it all. What good would having all of that wealth for 75, 80 years be if it comes at the cost of your eternal soul? And the answer is obvious. That's not a good deal. That's not a good trade. Again, Simeon wrote, What carnal enjoyments compensate for the loss of heaven? What transient pleasures counterbalance an eternity of glory? Would a momentary possession of the whole world be so high a gratification that any reasonable man would be content to lose even his physical life for it? How much less could it be a sufficient price 
for the soul. Again, it's, it's not a good deal. And it's foolish to live our lives as if it were so. Next, in verse 26, Jesus asks, Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? How, how are we to buy back or, or purchase our soul? What, what temporary physical currency can we use to purchase an eternal soul? There's no amount that can be paid. Nothing can be traded. There, there's no value we can put on it. Again, it's, it's therefore foolish to pursue those things of temporary wealth and comfort when they're compared to the eternity of the soul. Jesus teaches us here about living with eternity in mind when when thinking about worldly treasure. And so we've looked at the requirements, the reversal, the reasoning, and the last point this morning that we see, verse 27 is the reward. There it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The Son of Man is going to come. This is is Jesus' most prominent way of of referring to Himself in the Gospel accounts in the New Testament. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to return. When He will come back to earth to judge the living and the dead. And we see here that when He comes with His angels in the glory of His Father, He will repay each person according to what He has done. It's important to um, clarify here that in no way in, in these verses are we talking about salvation by works. We're not talking about earning anything. We know that's not the case. Um, we're saved by grace through faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As our substitute in our place for us and for our sins and in His glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day in victory over sin and death. But what we also see in Scripture is that what we do matters. And we will be held accountable for, and and we will give an account for our actions. This is is all throughout the New Testament. We see earlier on in Matthew, in chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we see that, as Stephen Lawson puts it, we're saved by grace, but judged by works. Our actions as believers, again, our actions as believers matter. We are to obey, we are to serve him, and by those actions of serving him, by those actions of worshiping him, by those actions of obeying Him, we display that we are indeed disciples of Christ. One of the best commentaries on verse 27 here in Matthew 16 is actually found from the lips of Jesus um, later on in Matthew chapter 25. And this is what Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's essential this morning that we understand the reward 
for which we live. I mean, up to this point in the message, we've talked about a lot of really difficult stuff. This passage is referred to as as one of the hard sayings of, of Jesus. And you can kind of see how somebody could, could think in their minds and have this idea of, of, you know, after all that we've heard thus far, it'd be kind of natural in some ways to think, well, who in the world would sign up for that? You're denying yourself. You're bearing a cross. You're, you're losing your life. I mean, is, is there anything positive here? Is there anything that, that is here to encourage and to, to motivate us? And absolutely there is. There's a reward that awaits those who are faithful. In Matthew 19, Jesus says this, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In Matthew 25, we read, the parable of the talents where the master tells the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Abundant life, eternal life, unsurpassed joy. All of these are the reward of those who are faithful. Faithful to deny themselves, faithful to to take up their cross, and faithful to follow Jesus. So this this morning, as as graduates, I hope you can see how this passage applies to professing believers. As you go on this morning, you're going to move on, continue in life. And as you do that, you also continue on this road of the Christian life. You continue on this road of following Jesus. And so I would ask you this morning, I would ask us as a congregation this morning to consider some of these questions as we close. And this is, this is just a time for self-reflection, for just honest, raw, real self-examination. And we ask ourselves, or Are we denying ourselves? Are are we bearing our cross? Do we seek to save our lives or or are we willing to, to lose our lives for Christ? We need to consider what Jesus has asked this morning. What what is the benefit of, of all the riches in the world if we lose our eternal? soul and how will we be repaid when Jesus returns will we inherit the kingdom or will we go away into eternal punishment and asking these questions and and examining deep down in in the deepest crevices of our hearts will reveal to us if we are indeed his disciples if not, then we need, we need to recognize that. We need to repent of sin and trust in Him to save us. And then we start on this road of discipleship. On the other hand, if we examine ourselves and we, we know that we are truly His disciples, we also compare ourselves to the standard found in this passage and found in the rest of Scripture. And we realize that none of us None of us have fully and perfectly arrived. We all have a lot of room to to grow with our answers to each one of these questions. But the key is that in our lives, moment by moment, day after day, we stay in the fight. We study the Word. We pray. We converse with others that, that are more spiritually mature than ourselves we we attend services we we hear teaching and preaching of the word we seek accountability we learn and grow and fight 
We seek to conform ourselves to the conditions and the parameters and the requirements that Jesus has laid out here to be his disciples. And we do so because in the end, there's an eternal reward of joy. And there's an eternal life with our Savior and our King forever. So let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these graduates, Father. We thank you for, um, Lord, revealing yourself to us in your word and for, Lord, the, the challenge that is set before us. And Father, we pray this morning that we would meditate on this. We would, would think on these things, Father. We would come to you in repentance and in faith. Lord, that we might continue on day after day for this life of sanctification. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one verse this morning of a hymn. We encourage you, if you do not know the Lord as Savior, that you make your way out of the pew if you're unsure, if you have doubt. And it's human to doubt, but you need to settle that this day. We'll give you an opportunity to respond this morning. What, what number, Brother Mike? 276. 276. Won't you stand? And, won't we, and come if the Lord is.